Hello and welcome to the AdFontes podcast. My name is Ansi Camel and I'm the editor-in-chief of the Davenant Press as well as the senior editor of AdFontes. And I'm joined as always, or at least this first time, by my two co-hosts, Colin Redimer, vice president of the Davenant Institute, and Reese Laverty, associate editor at the Davenant Press. Colin, do you want to tell us what we're doing here? This is our AdFontes podcast and it's a writer's editors and publishers podcast where we bring together people who are working on various projects inside Davenant uh, and and give them space to talk about why this project, why now, uh, why is this important for the church. I think there's a lot of folks out there who know of the Davenant Institute and, and love the Davenant Institute or know of Reformation theology and love Reformation theology, but they don't have the intellectual training or maybe the time right, to, to dig through an 800-page book on you know Luther's theory of justification or something. So what we want to do is create a conversational space where we can bring people who are engaging with these ideas in and have them talk some about why this book, why now, why is this a pressing issue for the church um, and, and make these, these concepts and these issues intelligible to, to your average reader, uh, average man in the pew. Yeah, that's really helpful. And I think one of the other goals of the podcast, you know, I mean, Ad Fontes means to the sources. And we sort of want this podcast to to not only go to the sources, but move beyond even uh, just sort of looking at the sources and and uh, to begin talking and, and thinking about what it might be like to look through the sources. I mean, to sort of filter the world through uh, the lens of, of Reformation theology and 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 you know, uh, patristic theology and so forth, just to kind of inhabit that world and see what it might have to say to us, say to us today. Um, so today, actually, we're going to be talking about Lent, um, the penitential season. We had Ash Wednesday not too long ago, and Easter, of course, is coming up. And we, you know, as Protestants, I mean, um, have various, Protestants have done various things about uh, liturgical seasons and Lent in particular. And we just thought it might be helpful to start uh, a discussion about how the church calendar more broadly and Lent in particular function for Protestants, how Protestants have thought about it in the past, what the importance of these things are for contemporary Christian practice, and particularly as, as a lot of evangelicals have started rediscovering the church calendar, at least parts of it, um, and have begun incorporating, you know, Lenten materials, Advent materials into the the lives of their churches. So how should how should we all be thinking about how these practices should inform uh, church life? So Reese, I just wanted to to kick it to you. I mean, what should we think about Lent? <laughs> um, well, speaking as someone from a fairly typical evangelical stable, it's interesting, like you say. We've been rediscovering it in a way, in, in a in a characteristic way. So I had a look through when we were prepping for this, the, the websites of some kind of popular level Christian publishers, and you'll see a growing kind of um, cadre of devotional books for Lent, kind of 40 days of readings, taking you up to the cross and that kind of thing, which if, I, if I've observed correctly, kind of follows on from a longer um, – uh, trend of advent devotionals in the same vein so when i was younger even like early teens i don't remember that being a thing i don't remember john piper writing advent devotionals and then like the first time i saw that i was like hmm, that's that's curious and i don't really remember us ever doing anything for for advent um but now that's much more commonplace uh, and lent seems to have caught on as well so um 
it, and my personal experience of it as a Brit, I don't know what it's like in America, I'll be interested, um, is that Lent is still kind of commonly understood to be going on. People know when it's happening, if only because it starts with Pancake Day and everyone wants to do Pancake Day. Um, and it's just a time to to give stuff up. Um, and that, that hasn't really changed. And then as evangelicals, we've kind of turned it into an excuse for a 40-day devotional, which is no bad thing. Um, but there's a lot more to Lent than that, or has been historically. Um, and I don't yet know that I see people kind of laying hold of that. So I don't know any evangelicals who kind of would generally have ash on their head on Ash Wednesday. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, um, it's fascinating when you think about it, that the the two sort of seasons that have gained traction among evangelicals, at least it seems to me, are Advent and Lent, uh, sort of penitential seasons that that have, you know, large evangelical feast days, um, in the old sense, uh, evangelical feast days, uh, attached to them and as their sort of consummation and fulfillment. Now, I just wonder, you know, what you guys think about why that is, why the emphasis on penitential seasons? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we're in a really dour cultural moment. You know, I, I think people, and, and it's been going on for, you know, more than four years, uh, certainly. And so when I was at Fuller Seminary, you know, the the hip thing was to talk about lamentation you know, and <laughs> and writing commentaries, reading lamentations, and really kind of the sackcloth cloth and ashes. Uh, that's the thing, and um, I, I think we, in the world that I run in, you know, Lent is uh, very seriously catching on in evangelical circles. But then, of course, I, I spend a lot of time with Roman Catholics and. In Roman Catholicism, Lent has been practiced for, for quite a long time in the U.S. And uh, what, what I think what people don't realize is um, that, that it's really these two seasons, right? There's there's like the Pancake Day thing and the, and the Mardi Gras tradition leading into it, and then there's and then there's this Lent, which is followed by Easter, which is the the great celebration. Um, and I, I think there's certain parts of it that are that are wonderful and helpful. Um, so Herman Bavink in his reformed ethics talks about the meditation on death and the salutariness of that. And so, um, Ash Wednesday, you know, if you're in a, if you're in a strongly Roman Catholic community, uh, Ash Wednesday is a day where you'll just see the majority of people are walking around doing whatever they're doing with ashes on their heads, remembering that they're but dust. And there's something kind of really, I think helpful in that, mm. uh, the meditation of recognition of your own mortality and of what mortality means for you as a Christian compared to what it meant for you when you weren't a Christian, um, that, that it's a, a pointing to a life beyond this life. It's not just a death. It's, it's a, it's a, uh, a thinking of your, your body as like a seed for your resurrected self. Um, but then that's distinct from this concept that we have to have a church disciplined 40 days of fasting, you know, mm. leading up to Easter, which I, I think is less clearly an essential part of the church. I think it can be, uh, but it's not clear that, you know, for example, you go back to uh, the ancient Christians commenting on, you know, the gospel of Luke or or one of the gospels where you see Jesus fasting for 40 days, which is often considered the scriptural pretext for why we would have a 40 day fast leading up to Easter. None of them mention this as an obligatory, you know, churchwide aspect of, of church discipline. So um, in my mind, at least I, I try to separate those things out. Yeah, no, I mean, I, as both of you know, um, According to, to random 
Twitter polls, I'm I'm probably a Lutheran, but actually I'm a Presbyterian. <laughs> well, it was a very it was, but, it was uh, a very high percentage of Lutheran. It was like ninety five, ninety eight percent. I was I was considering Lutheran. sending your your pastor an email. I was concerned about you. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, well, no, I mean, so so um, you know, at least uh, my denominational affiliation is Presbyterian, but Luther is my my one of my theological heroes, and um, his larger catechism, you know, on the Ten Commandments, he talks about. Um, uh, his commentary on on the third commandment, um, you know, remember the Sabbath, hallow the Sabbath, keep it holy. He um, he argues basically that that you know the Sabbath and by extension, sort of all calendar days are no longer obligatory for Christians as they were under um, the old covenant. And obviously, you know, Presbyterians, especially did your divino Presbyterians, will disagree with me. That's fine, but you know the Sabbath is no longer necessary uh, as a as a sort of holy day of obligation, but rather that that for Christians, um, um, every day should be hallowed, and yet as creatures, our bodies need days of rest, holidays, holy days, and so Luther says, well, since we're going to be having those anyway, we might as well sort of set certain ones apart for the public worship of God and the hearing of God's word. And, um, and I think you can extend that principle to the calendar and, and to penitential seasons, right? I mean, every, you know, as Luther says in his 95 theses, um, the whole Christian life is a life of repentance. Um, and yet it makes sense to sort of set time specifically apart for that. Um, because as creatures, we, we sort of need these patterns inscribed on us um, and on our bodies. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and I think as we're getting more and more secular, um, the Ash Wednesday in particular takes on more and more of desirability. You know, there's, there's a, 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 a desire for something there that is calling out to people. It's not actually even in the Roman Catholic church where literally everything is a holy day of obligation. You know, Ash Wednesday <laughs> is not one. And yet it's the, uh, by some polls, it's the third most highly attended church service uh, mm-hmm. in wow. the United States of America. Uh, after Christmas and Easter is Ash Wednesday where, where you don't have to go, but what's calling people to it, I think has something to do with a, a recognition of mortality, right? People say that Ecclesiastes, for example, is the the gospel to the secular age. Um, and so I, I think there's something kind of parallel with this desire for mortification of the self. And that's interesting. You say it brings people in because of, it reminds them of their mortality. Um, I wonder if that's because you don't really get given that anywhere else. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're selling something the world's not selling if we're, if we're observing Ash Wednesday. Um, and, but th- those seem to be the two sort of disparate elements. And I wonder if this is why maybe, even though it's sort of being rediscovered, evangelicals sort of don't quite know what to do with Lent. And I, I, I am still working on threading these two together, but there are two aspects to Lent. There's the penitential um, examining of our sin and the remembrance of mortality and death and um, putting the two together is, is a bit of a bit of a challenge for some people. Um, a famous Ash Wednesday text is Lancelot Andrews, who was one of the bishops under James I involved in um, writing the KJV preached a few famous Ash Wednesday sermons, one on Joel two, and uh, your heart, not your garments turn to the Lord, which gave rise to, uh, T.S. Eliot's famous Ash Wednesday poem and he kind of threads the two together so there's a turning he says of um, there's two turnings in repentance turning away from your sin and turning to God but he says also that um, there's um, 
something going on with with turning where um um we acknowledge the turning of time and the turning of the seasons and that's why lent comes at a good hmm. time in the year um because we're seeing the old turning um the old world dying as winter goes and the new world turning to life um and those two are connected i guess but i, I still struggle to, to kind of put the two together of both penance and mortality yeah no that's interesting and in fact i mean um uh, Samuel Bray, who's, uh, you know, in the Anglican Church of North America and a law professor at Notre Dame, ha- has a, an article in uh, the North American Anglican on this, on this very issue, you know, and, and ashes are, for uh, Anglicans at least, of relatively recent vintage. Um, and in the prayer book service, you know, in the traditional prayer book service, um, the focus isn't on death as such at all. It's on sin and guilt and... Um, Sin, guilt, and redemption. Reese, I mean, I'm sort of interested in, in getting your thoughts on this. I mean, so you pointed out that, you know, when we were all younger, these sorts of readings and Lenten sort of observances weren't mainstream in evangelicalism. Um, and building on what Colin said, you know, about how, how popular Ash Wednesday is, I mean, do you think there's something, I mean, um, I don't want to put this too harshly, but something sort of performative in what evangelicals are doing, like it's a sort of, it's a way of, of in an exaggerated fashion, enacting something that, or even in a superstitious fashion, you know, enacting something that, that they don't actually, we don't incorporate into our, our daily lives um, Mm -hmm. in an ostentatious way. Yeah. Well, kind of as to theorizing, like why this has happened, why the rediscovery, reinvention, retrieval, whatever you want to call it of Lent has, has been going on that, my, my most cynical reading is that it's a really good thing to market. Um, if you're producing a new resource, <laughs> if you're publishing, you that's know, exactly right. Forty days, uh, twenty-four days of Advent. Oh, that's a long enough time for you to shift a lot of books. Um, but yeah, most other yeah, seasons yeah. in the church calendar are a bit are a bit too short for that. Um, and because it is expectation, you know, it's, it's all build up to to the big thing at the end. Right. E- so you're telling season, me, what you're telling oh. us is that we need to publish an advent reading calendar here at Davenant because we, <laughs> yeah. we need yeah. some money. We need money. We do, exactly. <laughs> and when we get, get in on that gig, I mean, the market is getting saturated now. So, um, yeah, that, that's, a very, that's a very cynical kind of look at, you know, people who are publishing resources for God's glory and the good of the church. So, you know, I'll, I'll maybe I should penitently examine that attitude. Um, but um, uh, the performative side, yes. And I sort of struggle with that. So, I think the good thing about the evangelical rediscovery of Lent is that it, and you know, it being about devotional readings, um, is that it recenters the fact that the church calendar is word ministry. That's what kind of sold me on the church calendar, that it's not actually just about ritual and um, superstitious observance. Um, it can be like that. That's one of the reasons the Reformation happened, to kind of pull off all the stuff that had become encrusted onto it. But it's word ministry. It's directed to point you through the patterns of Christ's life to the lectionary readings. Um, so that's that's a good thing. Um, but then, yeah, I wonder if another reason that it's come back is because it coincides very well with the age of social media, where... You can, and the, do, you, do you guys see this? The Church of England put out a filter for Instagram where you could project uh, an ashen cross onto your forehead because um, you weren't oh, able to it. go to to Ash Wednesday on uh, to go to the, the church <laughs> service in the morning in the in the pandemic because lots of uh, uh, Anglican churches are closed at the minute. Though I have to say, the Evangelical Anglican churches are opened, which none of the crusty commentators over here in the UK who think the Church of England is dying like to 
noticed that all the life is in the evangelicals over here but that's another podcast um so yeah i wonder if it is slightly performative and it can feel performative i know this is someone who's trying to take some of those practices when you're trying to do it without a wider community so colin you talked about you know a whole roman catholic neighborhood you know everyone turns up at church so don't darken the door of the church most other days of the year but that day everyone is there everyone's got their ashes on their head whereas you know i, I on my own kind of feel a draw to the church calendar but I struggle with how performative that is when my local church kind of with no, no judgment on them for it. Cause it is adiaphora. You don't need to do it. It's fine. Um, isn't involved yeah. in that. So to what extent am I just kind of LARPing? When, yeah. Right. When you're, when you go down to the pub or whatever, and you're the only one with ashes on your head, it's sort of like your yeah. way of coming out of the closet or something, uh, <laughs> letting your, letting your freak flag fly. Um, <laughs> I, I, when I, when I look at American evangelicalism, I, I think that the, uh, you know, I talked about how we're in sort of a dour cultural moment. Um, but if we look farther back, you know, a lot of what we do is in response to the deracinated nature of life as Americans. So um, no one or very few people, you know, I'm one of very few people I know who's like a multi-generations. My family has been in California. Very few people that I know. Um <clears throat> And even for me, right, I'm, I'm not from the part of California that I'm in now. Um, Where are you so, from, Colin? Oh, oh I'm, I'm a corporate gypsy. You know, I've been, <laughs> I, I grew up all over the place. Uh, but I was born in a small farm town in the middle of the kind of agricultural region in California. And then we moved to L.A. and New York and anyway, um, and on and on. Uh, but I've settled here for, I don't know, 15 years or so in Northern California. We live in Oakland. Um, so if you look back, what's the historical connection? What, what, what we're always looking for as American Christians is, is rootedness. And so I think really well-meaning American Christian churches are constantly attempting to help root the people who come there, right, who are genuine Christians, really care. They know they want community. They need the word of God. They need the sacraments in their life. Um, and yet they also have this sense of loss because, like, their grandparents don't go there, right? Their relatives aren't buried in a cemetery nearby, um, and, and they don't have any real fellowship with the people there outside of being, knowing that they're fellow Christians. And so in the 60s and 70s, you saw the, the small group movement kind of took off in a huge way um, in American evangelicalism. Uh, and the reason for that, again, and, and, it's, and it's continued to this day, right? Every church has to have like a small group ministry. That's a thing. And why are they doing that? They're doing that because you you want to have ways for these people to make friends mm. literally at the church it's not an actual requirement of the church you don't have to have a small group ministry right to be the church and if you're in a town where everybody's been there forever you really don't need a small group ministry because everybody knows who they know right and you you're just kind of filtering through the the church as a part of life in the town and i think the recovery of lent is a similar grasping for roots someplace mm. uh, yeah, no, that's interesting. And it's it's um interesting to reflect both on the the sort of communal uh well on the on the sort of like theological justifications for Lent and just sort of but then also on the other hand that the kind of natural necessity of of marking off time, you know, as human beings. I mean I, I think about this often, but this, the early Scottish Presbyterians, you know, they they ditch the church calendar, right? It, you know, so that their cycle is not the sort of year-long liturgical cycle of the church calendar. Uh, or even the sort of, you know, um, stripped down minimal, you know, uh, evangelical feast day 
calendar that the the continental reformed are doing they just sort of break completely and go for a seven day cycle you know um six days of work one day of rest and yet what you find is that very very quickly they start having uh festivals particularly in the summer communion festivals where 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 everyone from a particular region would would come together and gather and they'd listen to a week or so of of sermons repenting and and sort of preparing themselves uh for for the supper for the eucharist and um and so it's kind of interesting how even sort of you know kind of informally from the ground up as it were um as luther says these things are natural necessities uh and and so even though we want to recognize you know as protestants that they're not uh spiritually necessary right they're not sort of obligatory for us in the same way that they were Mm-hmm. Um, as Hebrews puts it, you know, we've entered into Christ's Sabbath rest, so they're not necessary. And yet as, as creatures, they still have this kind of, um, we sort of find ourselves doing them, uh, in, even, even sort of in spite of ourselves, uh, in, in some cases. Yeah, that, that's right. And so in that sense, there's nothing wrong with Lent because, you know, these churches are just trying to help connect people back to themselves in some way. And if that's a church picnic or whatever that happens every April, or if it's you trying to rediscover something that's been used before, um, as long as it's being judiciously brought in uh, under the broader umbrella of the church's actual ministry through the word, uh, then I think it's great. And that that is the the reformed way of, of approaching these things. You go back to how even uh, Calvin he talk he talks about Lent explicitly at one point in his, uh, Book Four of the Institutes. Um, interesting, it's in the context of church discipline and and imposition and things being being pushed onto the church that are are excessive and unnecessary. So it's, it's interesting that that it's treated there. Um, and he you know, rails rightly against the superstitious stuff that's been added onto it. But there's no um, I don't I don't I someone might be able to tell me the kind of observance of these things in Calvin's Geneva. I don't know, but certainly in the text of the institutes, there's no outright kind of baby and bathwater rejection of, of Lent. Um, Luther similarly, like um, Omzi's, uh, Omzi's said, um, does, doesn't throw these things out. Um, and that's, that's then a later thing that we've gone kind of tried to reform further than the reformers, which yes, Semper Reformanda always be reforming. But um, I think most people would probably, if you ask them, what did, what did Calvin think of Lent? They might, well, and people like to make Calvin this miserable bogeyman, don't they? And L- Luther, he's having, <laughs> he's okay. He, he's, he's having Lent, but he probably, he broke his Lent and fast hard on Sundays and he had a much better time. Um, um, right, but right. We, get, we get, we have a kind of genetic fallacy where we think, oh, it has its origins in this Lent, and so I want to, I want to avoid it. But its origins, like so many of these things, are just so murky. Like, yes, lots of stuff happened in the medieval era, but um, its origins aren't there. It's, uh, it's mentioned at Nicaea, isn't it? Um, that the kind of Lent is a, again in the context of church discipline and people who've been excommunicated. Um, Lent is a good time to kind of think on your sins and bring people into kind of repentance and baptism and stuff at the end of it. Um, yeah, that was a bit of a rambly thought about it um i didn't know no, but no i think i think that's really helpful i think especially you know uh, a lot of uh protestants and particularly evangelicals you know in kind of reaction against certain things well we'll sort of use you know well that's catholic or that's medieval as a conversation stopper right and it's like well if it's catholic or medieval you can't do it um and obviously lent in this case you know is not catholic uh in in the sort of roman sense it precedes the reformation right so 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 all christians have a kind of equal claim to it um, 
and yet you know it gets sort of associated with with uh, Roman Catholicism and then and then sort of kicked out of bounds, uh, so to speak, by by a lot of people. So I think I think this is helpful. So so we have you know it can be a good practice. It can be a socially necessary practice, uh, something that 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 is necessary uh, in the sense that humans sort of naturally find themselves doing it, and yet it's not a spiritually necessary practice. Um, but but it can be good. It can be beneficial. Um, and and uh, I don't know. I mean, are there sort of stronger words of affirmation that you two would use than than it can be or or, or it could be? Or I mean, should we should we say it sh- people should be doing this or or shouldn't be? Well, I think your point about how we we will tend to towards some annual cycle. Humans will will put something in there. If even if we tear out the church calendar, something will come in. It'll be. I know the Fourth of July for you guys, or um, Remembrance Day. Actually, here, you know, Armistice Day, eleventh of November, is traditionally um, one of the most well-attended Sundays in churches in England. Um, so that kind of puts this big point of rhythm in the year. So I guess the question is, you're being, you're going to be governed by something, some calendar, some rhythm to your year. So why not lean into a well-worn, kind of time-proven rhythm to your year um that there's a lot of uh, resources to hand use that kind of horrible utilitarian word but there's a lot of sermons and books and reflections and worship practices from centuries that um are already there to equip you so why try and reinvent the wheel would be my my thought on it and again to, again this is what sells it to me it is a it's word ministry it's a chance to make sure that you cover the basics you cover jesus's life um and how that then pushes you back into the old testament with the old testament readings um attached to it um evangelicals we we, we want to rightly foreground the basics foreground the gospel be gospel centered um there's no kind of better way of doing that than replaying the story of the gospel of what's revealed in jesus year after year yeah i i, I think the danger that we haven't talked a, a, a lot about is that we we grasp for these things because of our sense of rootlessness uh, without realizing what the how, you know what the deeper problem is and and how what that, is the deeper problem yeah and how that gets solved so for example no no small, no I was asking you what what's, yeah, what's the deeper um, problem <laughs> please Anzi let me you know tell give us, me Colin. my moment yeah uh, tell us so so for for small groups for example right. You, you start a small group ministry and the deeper problem is your, your members uh, don't have friends. And just because you're in a small group with somebody doesn't mean you're making friends. And, and if you don't just name the problem, then you can't organize the small group to, to help folks. I mean, obviously there's more than, than one problem. It could be that your people aren't studying scripture. Um, but I, I would, uh, I would counsel churches that grab for these, these ideas or these fads as a panacea to try to think a bit more deeply um, mm-hmm. because if you want to get reconnected to the roots of Christianity, uh, you, you don't do that by launching a program, right. Or reading a book. Um, you, you have to do that through contemplation of God and, and that through God's word um, in a community uh, mm-hmm. that's under the authority of scripture and rightly ordered. So, yep. um, you know, Lent doesn't solve that problem for you if you adopt some sort of Lenten practice. And but you can kind of fool yourself, right? It's like putting a Band-Aid on a on a gaping wound um, and thinking like, "Wow, we're really deep now. We've really connected mm-hmm. to the church, and we we really understand we what it means to yeah to be historically you know connected to the Christian tradition." And um, I think it there's a real danger in it in it being kind of a, a superficial 
uh, patch over a, a larger, deeper issue, uh, which, which, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I think it could go back to the, you know, poor seminary education. It could go back to poor catechesis. Um, but ultimately it goes back to a, a poor connection, a poor understanding of the gospel. Mm. Um, yeah. You know, I don't, I don't know that I would have necessarily connected like, you know, friendlessness, you know, uh, people trying to solve their friendship issues <laughs> through a penitential season of reflection on death and, and suffering and sinfulness. But, but, you know, I suppose, I suppose, uh, well, no, I, the, I, I take your broader point, but yeah, friendship is connected more to the small group issue. Uh, but, uh, but you know, how many, how many of the Lent practices in your church are just like, Oh, let's have a small group. And what are we going to do? I don't know. We'll talk about Lent cause it's Lent season or something. Um, I don't know. I've, I, I've never really been in a church. And, that it, and then becomes Lent. this weird, slightly empty uh, thing. Because you know how Christmas Christmas is now a holiday about Christmas, and there's no center. Right. There, <laughs> it's a meta holiday. Like, yeah. you, want, you want to feel, yeah, you want to feel Christmassy, and it just perpetuates itself. And how long can that go on? And the, the danger is that Lent can become a similar thing. That we're doing Lent. Let's talk about Lent. Yeah, let's think about Lent. How's your Lent? We're Lenting. It comes comes relentless. Um, we're Lenting. So, Great. Yeah. yeah, talking about Lent as opposed to talking about the fact that that you're going to die and and you're mm. going to stand before your Maker. And, yeah. uh, yeah. which is why it's word Christ. ministry. That's right. That's right. Yeah. 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 And, right. and uh, actually, uh, I think maybe one of the wisest, one of the best objections to Lent, which I've, I've seen a, a fellow free church person make recently is, well, okay, if that's a problem that you're not thinking about your mortality, deal with it now. Don't wait until Lent, um, which is a good, a good point on one level. Yes. Deal with, deal with your sin. Think on, you know, learn to number your days, gain a heart of wisdom. Um, Yet we we don't have the time to think about all of the things all of the time. I can't be thinking about the incarnation and the cross and the resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit and my sin and Christ's suffering for me in the wilderness, you know, all at once. So again, word ministry of an annual cycle, that means you just spend some special time thinking about this particular thing. Right. No, I think that's I think that's really helpful. And I think, you know, to to sort of wrap wrap this conversation up, I'll just read a couple lines from Luther's large catechism on that point, Reese. He says, actually, worship ought to take place daily. However, because this is more than the common people can do, at least one day a week ought to be set apart for it. And so then he goes on to talk about Sundays and, and, and you know, you can extend that principle to the rest of the calendar. But that's, that's exactly right. Like, worship should be happening all the time. We don't want to dispute that principle. Reflection on mortality should be happening all the time and so forth. And yet, um, regular people just, you know, people like us, we, we're busy. We've got kids. We're, we're not sleeping at night. Um, and, and so we need the church to sort of help us focus our, our, our mental energy and our spiritual energy. Um, and the calendar is a great way to do that. And Lent is a, is a good way to do that for, um, seasons of penitence and reflection on death. So something else we want to be doing in this podcast is just to kind of give a little window into what we're reading. Um, kind of talk about, you know, uh, the life of the mind books that we're finding particularly stimulating, um, and why, um, yeah. So, I mean, you know, Colin Reese, you're reading anything interesting these days. I'm reading, uh, Leo Strauss's the argument and action of Plato's laws, uh, partially so you're reading Strauss about Plato. Yeah. Yeah. Most, I mean, Leo Strauss is famous, uh, political philosopher, famous American philosopher generally. And, uh, most of his writing was not uh, him giving his own philosophical anything. It's, it's overwhelmingly him commenting. He's famous for commenting on ancient writings. 
Um, and so then, you know, you, it's, it's a bit of a game when you read him because you have to kind of read between the lines to figure out what is it that Leo Strauss thinks versus what does Plato <laughs> think? Because he says it's all just what Plato thinks, but you kind of know that that's not true. So, um, and I'll be teaching the laws this summer by Plato uh, at Davenant House. So trying to get myself prepared for that. That's funny. You know, I mean, um, <laughs> that's a sort of a, a time-tested tradition. Thomas Hobbes, when, you know, towards the end of his life, he was forbidden from writing anything in his own name. And this was common in the Renaissance too. And so he just started writing uh, translations. And so, you know, these would be terrible translations and you sort of read them and you wonder like, why are these translations so bad? It's because he's, you know, giving his own, you know, his own thought uh, as he's, you know, quote unquote, translating. Um, yeah. And you find the same thing in the Renaissance. So, yeah, so Strauss, you know. Strauss says that this is how most of philosophy has been done for most of history, uh, because most philosophers will be killed if they say exactly what they think. And so uh, you have to look at their commentaries on other things and you have to read between the lines. Um, and so the training in philosophy for Leo Strauss is a learning how to um, read and, and, you know, um, build a case for what somebody is saying, even though they've never said it. So philosophy is esotericism or something like philosophy that. Philosophy is esotericism, yeah. Well, I, I'm in Colin's Aristotle class at the minute, and he does keep stopping off and saying, this is what Aristotle really wants to say, but he would have been killed for saying that. Uh, and it, it's like this sort of decoding a Le Carre-esque um, kind of spy dispatch. You know, this is, this is what's really being said here through the cipher. Um, so... Yeah, it, it's 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 been that's good value for money. That's something I didn't expect to get in in uh, in a class in Aristotle. Um, what am I reading? I'm reading um, the Crucifixion by Fleming Rutledge, which came out a few mm, years ago. Nice. Um, which got a, got a lot of coverage at the time, and then a friend of mine had recently read it, and he said there was so much in there he wanted to read it again. So we decided to read it together. Um, and she's she's a funny kind of figure in the boxes that she ticks or doesn't tick for someone from my stable you know she's an ordained um minister in i can't remember one of the american episcopalian denominations so that immediately for someone from my background you know you know kind of uh, sets my teeth on edge um but um yeah i'm i'm a generously generously minded guy to to draw what i can from across the (laughs) across the ecclesial aisles um really rich and challenging just a couple of um chapters in and she'll she'll again i She'll kind of say things that made me think, okay, she's leaning a bit sort of theologically left of me. And then she'll make some brilliant swipe against like, you know, my theological enemies. And I'll be like, oh, okay, so you're the enemy of my enemies. You must be my friend. Um, uh, <laughs> no, she's, and she's brilliant. Well, she's really that, been what I've heard. pushing. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really fun. Uh, and um, what I've got from it so far is really pushing me on the question of not just why did Jesus die, but why was Jesus crucified? Um, mm. Why that manner of death? Um, which and is it, uh, she's, is it the she's wood strong. of the cross, or what's her what's her take? Oh, it's the wood of the cross. It's the four uh, corners of the cross, which you know are, oh, yeah. are apparently really important. And you know, until like I don't know the Reformation, um, she, she, has, she hasn't got to that bit yet. Um, That's true. Yeah, that, that question. The fathers patristic commentaries on that the four points of the cross i mean it's you know it's it's encompassing the whole universe right i mean it's it's a kind of like it's the the tree of life you know yeah yeah Yeah, it's everywhere yeah um yeah that 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 question because she's really strong on atonement and substitution which is great ticks my penal substitutionary atonement boxes but the question i'm batting around is okay penal substitutionary atonement will tell you why christ had to die but can it tell you why he was crucified uh Mm. that's that's what I'm. That's what I'm batting around with my my reading partner uh, at the minute. So yeah, it's, it's 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 it wasn't chosen as such, but it's become good Lenten reading. Yeah, 
No, that's, that's, that's really good. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I've been reading for my part. I mean, nothing, nothing, um, probably something less, um, sanctified than Fleming Rutledge's The Crucifixion, but probably better than Strauss. More sanctified than Leo Strauss. <laughs> <laughs> I've been reading Nietzsche's Beyond Good and Evil. Uh, so let, let that let that stand for how I think about Strauss. But no, I'm just kidding. Um, but yeah, no, I, 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 um, I mean, Nietzsche, you know, is someone to be, uh, for, for those of you listening to this podcast who don't know me, uh, yes, I will sort of officially, you know, grant that Nietzsche should be treated with caution for all sorts of reasons, enter all the disclaimers here, but Nietzsche is actually really awesome and people should read him. Um, <laughs> and uh, in Beyond Good and Evil, you know, I mean, one of the first arguments he makes is that, um, you know, uh, Christianity allied with Platonism to give us a, a sort of philosophy of truth. And that's just sort of misguided the West for for millennia. And really what we should be after is a philosophy of life, a uh, philosophy of, of human flourishing. And he sort of construes that you know, in a very non-Christian, anti-Christian way. But I find that Nietzsche is an extremely perceptive uh, critic of Christianity. And and um, and for that reason, someone worth engaging with as a Christian. And he's also just a very sort of um, lively and original thinker. You know, I mean, all sorts of... But, but uh, Anzi, you have to learn how to read Nietzsche between the lines, you know? Oh, gosh. He, a, he's, he's actually advocating for, uh, you know, the true faith of Christianity. You, you've just got to see it. He, yeah, I, I, I don't think so, Colin. We'll have, we'll have a whole episode on Nietzsche. we got to do that. I don't okay, think anyone's okay, going to put him that. to death. I mean, he put himself to death. And as I think someone who introduced me to Nietzsche said, he he died mad and full of syphilis, which was an entirely fitting end. <laughs> true. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's, that's, uh, that is true. But anyway, so I've been, I've been enjoying that quite a bit. Um, well, um, we also, you know, want to be highlighting, as Colin said, this podcast is supposed to be a kind of window into Davenant 2, you know, a kind of window into into the organization. So we just want to take a minute to highlight um, something from, you know, Davenant's uh, press or, you know, classes or lectures or conferences or so forth, you know, things that are coming up or that we've published. And uh, today we're, we're highlighting the Reformation Theology Reader. You can find this on the Davenant Institute website. You go to uh, uh, the bookstore and you'll find it there or you can find it on Amazon. And basically the Reformation Theology Reader is a selection of primary sources, uh, Catholic and Protestant. So there's some good Erasmus, uh, some, some papal bulls and so forth. Uh, in addition to Luther, Calvin, uh, some Vermigli, but, but it's just a nice window into the Reformation. It's um, key selections and there are introductions to each text and introductions to the book, which kind of just, you know, makes the context of the Reformation intelligible. And so you read this excerpt after you've read the context of it, and you can see, you know, you get a window into into how people are arguing, what their concerns are, what their arguments are, um, and also, you know, how Protestants related to, to Catholics and vice versa, because it, particularly at the beginning of the Reformation, it wasn't clear that Erasmus was going to stay with Rome rather than siding for Luther and... and, and um, it's a it's so, a, a masterful yeah. work. I've I've used it to teach uh, about the Reformation before, and it's the only thing like it out there. Where you have all the primary sources with little you know introductory essays helping people yeah. ground each one, and they're arranged chronological order, so you can kind of follow the the follow the sources, uh, and yeah. then and then from there to be able to kind of turn around and look at look at the various churches and and the landscape of Christendom and see okay I you know this is 
this is how we got where we are. Um, mm-hmm. It's it was a brilliant resource when it came out for the 500th anniversary, right, of the Reformation. That's right. That's okay, right. Because so. back then I was not the editor in chief of the Davenant Press. I was a lowly volunteer, and it was <laughs> one of the first books come? I worked on for us. I know how far I've come. My meteoric rise uh, from, from the a- from, from the ashes. From from the Lord has seen you high with princes. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So, um, but yeah, so you, again, you go to the Davenant Institute website, you go to the bookstore, you can find it there. You can search for it on Amazon. It's called Reformation Theology, a reader of primary sources with introductions. Um, it's a great resource, highly recommend it. Buy it for the, you know, person in your life who you want to know about Reformation Theology, but, but doesn't. Yeah, and it's also, I mean, like Colin said, it's a very good textbook as well. Uh, I know some people do use it kind of as a textbook in colleges or training uh, training programs. So if you are in that position and you would potentially use it with um, to train people, then we can we can give a very generous discount on uh, bulk orders over five. Uh, so if you're interested in actually kind of making use of it to teach, then um, get in touch with us and we can we can sort you something out. So now that we've offended all of our major constituencies and sold you our wares, um, if you like what you hear, give us a five star review. If you don't like what you hear, you can email Colin Redimer and you can find his contact information on the Davenant Institute website. Uh, but please don't email me or Reese. Um, Reese is a good guy. Why would you do that to him? Um, no, well, I'm all the way over here. Most of you guys are in America. So, um, you can't take it. Country- can't take no. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. All right. Well, anyway, um, we are the editors and writers and vice president of the Davenant Institute. This is the Ad Fontes podcast, and we will see you next week.